0: Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you, my friends? I hope you're well. hope you're finding a new fall flow for yourself. I'm always amazed at uh, how every season brings with it a new perspective, for better or worse. And it seems to propel me in a direction that gives me some insight into both where I've been and the foundation for where I'm going. Something new I'm going to try out here for the fall with the podcast is my first series. Over the next three weeks, I will be talking to experts from different fields about what we are putting into our bodies. I could simply say that these are conversations about food and nutrition, but the food part is the complicated part. Our relationship to it, the nutritional balance, its effects on us, the energy we derive from it, and the pleasure, if we still allow ourselves to derive pleasure from this complicated relationship. Without giving too much away, I'll just say that there was a thread to these three episodes for me that have already been recorded and I think there's a good chance that you might find something different in this, a different thread for yourself. So I'd love to hear what yours was. And maybe, maybe it was something simple. Maybe it was something obvious you'd forgotten, something you know works for your body. Maybe it was something about your relationship with food. Uh, whatever it is, please share it with me. You can uh, write me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com, or you can send me a voice memo if you're willing to share your voice on the air with others. Today's episode is about the psychology of binge eating with Dr. Glenn Livingston, and it's sure to be food for thought. If this is your first time listening to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is a place for you to explore and create your own blueprint for health. Having worked in integrative health for more than 20 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our world come to have an effect on our health, and it is my hope that through these conversations here on the podcast, you might be able to navigate it with greater ease, make more informed decisions, and live a vital and supported existence. I just want to say thank you also to the new supporters of the podcast. Your show of support inspires me to keep bringing you these conversations and delivering content to help improve our experience together. If you haven't donated yet, it's very easy. You can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Yep, just $1 a month. Please take a minute here and go over to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. And I promise to keep bringing you these same amazing episodes, conversations, and resource that you've been getting for the past three years. And I will send you a, a personal thank you for for helping out. I have to mention uh, one more thing here that warms my heart. It is an email that I recently received. Hi, Jeremy. I really loved your Iceland podcast and so happy to hear that you and your family enjoyed my country so much. You still have a lot to see, but you did a lot in a week. Come back again soon. I should also mention that I'm a nurse and looking forward to listening to all the Highway to Health episodes. By the way, you did a pretty decent job pronouncing most of the town names, but also made me laugh out loud with a couple of them. Warmly, Katrine. (laughs) Uh, Had a feeling I might have uh, butchered a few of these, so um, uh, thanks, Katrine. Uh, My wife and I have actually been talking about returning at some point because we had such a great time there and it's a couple of areas that we would have liked to have explored more um let me see if i actually got the uh pronunciation right let me let me see if i could pull up a icelandic translation of your name let's see what happens here all right katrin. what was that katrin. okay so i screwed up your name to katrin <laughs> uh, sorry, my uh, my cyborgs not and my cyborg accent is not very good either, so I'll have to live with that. Uh, if you haven't uh, listened to the episode yet, uh, I share my family's experience and itinerary. You can also listen, uh, check out the um, Highway to Health podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I put up a day to day photo journal for the seven days of that trip, and there's some pretty pretty decent shots to give you a good feel for for the country. Uh, I have one more quick ask for you before we get rolling with today's episode. If you haven't given us a review, if you could scroll down to the bottom of your episodes feed and give us some stars and tell me the reason you keep tuning into the show uh, to help others get more informed. And um, one more thing, uh, if you hear a conversation here you like, maybe one the one you're about to hear right now about binge eating, and think there's somebody else who might be interested, please send it to them. Just tap the send icon with the arrow and uh, shoot it to them in a text Uh, Email, Telegram, WhatsApp, whatever, whatever your favorite form of staying in touch is. And just like that, you did something good today. All right, so let's get to it. Uh, There's something very important in this conversation that I had with Dr. Glenn Livingston, and he's got a book available for free download called Never Binge Again. Glenn shares uh, not only his personal story of overcoming the, the demons of his own binge eating, He also shares the work uh, that he did doing research and marketing as a consultant with big food companies who knew exactly how they could make the most money off consumers, and in many cases, using the least nutritional content once they learned our psychological habits. This is a fascinating look uh, into the parts of the human brain and how we can regain our power over the habits we want to change. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Glenn Livingston. was your psychotherapy background um, before? Obviously this is kind of a, a more recent part of your work I'm guessing, right? How, how many years have you been doing the, the coaching for binge eating? About four and a half years. What was the background that you had before that? I, I've had a dual career.
1: I, my, I never had kids and I didn't commute so I had a lot of time. Yeah. And I was a clinical and clinical child and family psychologist. I work with couples and their kids and then I also was a marketing consultant for Fortune 500 companies. Oh, wow.
0: In what what regard?
1: Um, I went to a scientist practitioner school, and they taught me how to do something called the multivariate modeling of human behavior, which meant I knew how to measure psychological response without asking people directly, and that turned out to be very much in demand in the fortune 500 world because they wanted to understand what psychologically drove purchase interest without having to ask people directly about it. Right. So, so I ran marketing research, I did all these studies and I would interpret them and then go make presentations. And, um, I kind of felt like I was on the wrong side of the war. You know, I was helping big food to sell poison and big pharma to sell poison and that's over. That's
0: a long time ago. I feel like most people have a, you know, have something that they, you know, we we obviously have to like start out figuring out a, a, a way to earn a living and a way to to make enough money to be secure enough. But I think you know at some point, and it's, I feel like this is a theme in a lot of conversations, interviews that I've done is. That, and, and even in my own story that you know we, we, we do something for a period of time and then we realize the long term effects of it or you know that you just start becoming more interested in having having a, a positive effect on things and so then you have to usually change courses in the middle of things, which is n- not an easy thing to do it's not an easy thing to do at
1: all. I was married to someone who wanted to spend a lot of money and so we had a lot of financial pressure yeah, and yeah. she made a lot I made a lot we spent more and <laughs> Sometimes I step back and I say, "Do you know my name is on forty million dollars worth of checks? How is that? How is that even possible?" And I don't know where it all went. I mean, I I don't have that in the (laughs) (laughs) bank. Right. I I, I really don't. Yeah. But it's only the last five years or so that I I say no to every marketing project, and I uh, really just work exhaustively and helping binge eaters and spreading the word, and so.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a hard shift. I I started out. I mean, I I was, I was an English major, so I I wasn't even planning on going into medicine (laughs) in any, any, any sort of way. I was planning on going into teaching and then I had a little detour into a musical career. And then, um, I started helping my mom start a, a, a business and, you know, her, her business has done well. She's kind of getting to the point where she's about ready to retire. So, you know, it's been 30 years or something that she's had this business going. And, You know, there was just something about product for me. You know, I mean, you know, people have to. I mean, I buy product, and people have to sell product. And yeah, I I just I I started looking for something that was like as simple as you know as it could possibly be. And for for me, it was you know realizing that I could sort of build a career with my hands. And I and I'd always felt like that was a, a strong point for me. I always felt like I sort of Knew how to do things well with my hands. I played sports all the time when I was a kid, and it just got to a point where I, I felt like I kind of want to try this, and then, and then I ended up becoming a, a body worker, and then oh, that, I see. that that led into other you know other forms cr- of cranial, movement cranial work, the craniosacral yeah. work, and the I did a varying kinds of body work, and and then I, it also was just kind of a natural for me, and I didn't even realize it, and I was kind of avoiding almost going into it too. I I, I went back to massage school really to kind of solve a back problem that I had, feeling like well. Worst case scenario, I'm sure I'm going to get some massages (laughs) and I'm going to learn a lot about myself. And it just sort of turned out that I I kind of had a knack for it. I had a knack for working with people in that way. And I had done a lot of service jobs, so maybe that was part of it. But I had just some great teachers at the time, too, who really sort of helped me understand my place and the power dynamics of that role. And and it it, it turned out to be a, a, a great choice for me
1: and god bless people like you it's if if anybody in the audience has not tried craniosacral or is considering to come and have a consultation i, I got to tell you it was a life-saving thing for me after my car accident as a matter of fact i want to find someone down here and um just go for a
0: session J- just for the
1: relaxation honestly yeah it, it yeah that's something to the nervous system I, I don't know what you guys do but <laughs>
0: <laughs> well th- that's the thing you know I, I i explain it sort of simply in that you know we're, we're our body is in the in the process of of constantly rebalancing itself, and you know the it basically kind of gets stuck in process a lot of times. And once we get into this fight, fight or flight mode, it's it's really hard to get out of it. And so it's it is I almost kind of think I mean there's a, there's a very physiological part of craniosacral work which is working with fascia and and with the dural membrane and all this stuff. But there's an a, another part of it that's almost kind of like assisted meditation, and it's it's what drew me in too because. I've always been uh, the kind of person that runs and <laughs> doesn't know quite when to stop. And yeah. I, I always have a million projects going on at the same time, so I, I have to have it as a kind of balancing thing for myself, too.
1: Well, thank, thank God you do.
0: The one thing I really liked about, about your sort of book and idea, and I know the book was, was sort of something that was proposed to you, but it's a, a take that I haven't seen yet, which is kind of looking at the psychological aspects of, of binge eating Mm-hmm. And, and, and you have, you know, the sort of the personal experience of having to make a, a change later in life with a issue like this. Was, was writing the book sort of part of your own process?
1: Oh, God, yeah. I had a, just to give
0: you a little more background, um, I come from a family
1: of psychodynamic psychotherapists. Mm. So we, we were very involved in, you know, sit down and tell me about your mother and let's figure out how you're repeating your past. And, um, you know, let's look at the deep memories and feelings and things you might be avoiding in order to stop repeating those problems in the present. And um, there were 17 of us in the in the family, and not, not my immediate family, it's only four in the immediate family, but you know, it turned out my stepdad and my stepmom and my cousins and my brother-in-law and my aunt and my uncle, and I sometimes even think the family dog were psychotherapists. And that, that's important because when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right. and it actually... It it contributed to the problem I had over the years. I'll explain that in a minute. So my, my eating problem started when I was about 17. And I figured out that because I'm 6'4 and pretty muscular, that I could eat whatever I wanted to if I worked out for two or three hours a day. Yeah. So that's what I did. And if you've ever... Been to a 7 Eleven and they were out of Twinkies, or been to a pizza place and they said, Sorry, we don't have any more. It's probably because I was there first. Right. I, I was li- literally having six, 7,000 calories a day and I thought it was great. And, I did and you got away with it. I got away with
0: it. Yeah.
1: I mean, depends what you mean by getting away with it. Cause yeah, it does yeah, steal right. a lot of your
0: life. Right. <laughs> right?
1: Because you, you are spending a lot of time working out. You don't really have to spend working out. And then you're spending time sleeping it off. You're spending time in the bathroom and then you're spending time eating right and all of that energy could be used for other things yeah other really healthy things but um, but it wasn't and I didn't think it was a problem you know, youth is wasted on the young and I was 17 and I got away with it when I stopped getting away with it was when I was married I was 22 23 years old and I was commuting two hours each way to graduate school and I had patience and I had books to read, and I had tests to take, and I had responsibilities at home, and God forbid my ex-wife wanted to talk to me at the moment, then you know, I was really not capable of taking care of anything besides what was in front of me, and yeah. I just didn't have the time to work out.
0: You're, you're 22 or 23 years old.
1: <laughs> yeah, when I got married really early. Yeah. And I couldn't stop eating, though. I was still having five, six, seven thousand 7,000 calories uh, a day. Yeah. Whole pizzas boxes of muffins boxes of chocolate bars and I got fat not all at once slowly but surely I would you know gain some lose some gain more lose some more gain even more lose some more and being from a family of psychologists I decided that the problem was most likely that there was a hole in my heart metaphorically speaking yeah and if I could figure out why I was feeling unloved and unhappy then I stopped trying to fill the hole in my heart by filling the hole in my stomach. Yeah. So I went to the best psychologists and psychiatrists. I took medication, I went over to Overview's Anonymous. I even did a 40,000 person study to figure out the relationship between food and different areas of life stress and personality. And I'll tell you that, I'm just gonna shortcut this a little bit because it could be a long story. Yeah. But I'll tell you that there were three major findings over the course of about 30 years that brought me to the conclusion that at least for people like me, you can't love yourself thin. that that's not really the problem. Yeah. And the problem is more is it's not so much that you have to nurture your inner wounded child back to health. Although I'm totally in favor of doing that. I think it's a soulful thing to do. And yeah. I I don't regret the journey. It's right, a, big right. who, a big part of who I am. Yeah. But you can't really nurture your, can't really love yourself back out of a food addiction because the part of your brain that responds to food addiction doesn't know love. The part of your brain that responds to addiction, it's, uh, it's the same part that generates the fight or flight response or the feast or famine response. It's the reptilian brain, the most primitive part of our neuroanatomy. And yeah. I'm sure you know more about this than I do, and you could put me to shame. But no, just you probably very...
0: you probably know more than me, actually. But it's but go on, because this is this is very interesting for me.
1: Well, when the primitive part of our brain looks at something in the environment, it says, "Do I eat it? Do I mate with it, or do I kill it?" <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: that, that's what the lizard brain is thinking. There's no love there. Love is a byproduct of the mammalian brain and the neocortex. The mammalian brain says well, wait a minute, before I eat, made, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the people that I love in my tribe? Mm-hmm. And how is that going to make me feel? that's really what feelings are, connections to you know, the people that we what we love and our desire to form a tribe and a community. Yeah. And then the neocortex says, the upper part of the brain says, well, before you eat, made, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on your longer-term goals, on your strivings and aspirations on your all the things that we think of as uniquely human really are, are Mostly in the neocortex, but really a combination of the neocortex and the, the mammalian brain it, it, it's you know spirituality and music and art yeah and Contribution and diet and weight loss long-term goals. Mm-hmm. Those are all in the upper part of the brain Now it's intriguing that the upper part of the brain is superior to the lower part of the brain in most respects You can override most impulses. Physiologically, we are set up to be superior to the lizard brain. We're capable of regulating it to accomplish our goal. So if you're a human being and you have a brain, then this is true of you, which is very important because the urge to overeat feels like it takes control. feelings aren't facts, but it really feels as if you're powerless over it, as if you can't do anything about it, like someone is holding a gun to your head and saying you better have those Twinkies. Right. It it really feels like that, and you throw all of your best laid plans out the window. But I'm I'm here to tell you that that's absolutely not true. What I came to understand through the study that I did for all the consulting I was doing for the large companies and through um, my own experience in studying neuroanatomy was that, you can't love yourself. Then it's not like you're turning an inner child, will to, will a child back to health. It's more like being an alpha wolf dealing with the challenger for leadership in the pack.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense to me too.
1: And when an alpha wolf challenges the leader, I'm sorry. When a challenger approaches the leader and tries to topple the leader in a, in a wolf pack, the alpha wolf doesn't say, "Oh my goodness, someone needs a hug." <laughs> right. 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 The alpha wolf growls and snarls and says, get back in line or I'll kill you. Look, I'm the boss. You're underneath me. You can be in this pack as long as you don't challenge me. Yeah. Um, The other things, and it had nothing to do with the hole in my heart. The other things that convinced me of that were the consulting I was doing for big industry. I mean, you would not believe how many millions of dollars go into engineering these hyper palatable food-like substances that are... Concentrations of sugar and fat and salt and oil and excitotoxins and starch and 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 they're all designed To hit our bliss point without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Yeah resulting in Breaking our hunger and full meters and making us want more come back from results in a biological error,
0: right? And um, and I think most people think this is a sort of a conspiracy theory that this, that this stuff or not not most people. I think there, there are there are always people who will defend that this is you know people who are just upset with their own food compulsions or whatever. But you were working directly with you know people who were really looking at the psychological effects and and knowing exactly the way they were manipulating things
1: and, and the physical effects too and the physical most effects
0: which are which are hand in hand.
1: I always say that every time, every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, that there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache just laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember a guy in the food bar manufacturing industry who told me that the most profitable thing they did was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. Yeah. They, they faked us out to make it look healthy. Vibrant colors like you'd see in a salad right. in, in nature. Uh, they faked us out to make it look healthy, and they actually made it less healthy for us. Hmm. And I don't mean to single them out, because that goes on all across the industry. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. And then, then there are five to 7,000 messages a, a year beamed at us about food. And how many of those do you think are about making us have more, more fruit and vegetables? Right. N- not many. Uh, no. I, I think the study of, so I said maybe a half a dozen. Um so those are overwhelming forces, and the the you know big food and big advertising those are overwhelming forces, and that has nothing to do with my upbringing. The last thing that really convinced me was the study that I did i I got forty thousand people to take a survey, kind of extended survey when the days when internet clicks were cheap, and I could do that over a couple of years, yeah and when I analyzed the survey, I found that there were some relationships between the type of stress people were experiencing and the particular foods that they craved when people were feeling stressed from loneliness or brokenheartedness or depression, they tended to crave chocolate and have trouble with chocolate. Mm-hmm. If people were feeling stressed at work, they tended to crave pretzels and chips, salty, crunchy things. Hmm. And if they were stressed at home, they tended to crave soft, starchy, chewy things and also pizza. So bread and bagels and pasta. Yeah. Yeah. And when I looked at that, I thought, Oh my God, well, maybe I have something here. Maybe this is the emotional connection. And I went and I talked to my mom who is a therapist and also the person who raised me. And I said, mom, you know what? I'm in a bad marriage. I I know I'm in a bad marriage and you know, I, I don't know if I can get out of it or not. I, I eventually did. But but I can't believe that that's the whole reason that I go to chocolate when I feel upset. What happened in my upbringing that might have set up this pattern? And my mom gets this horrible look on her face, this horrible sound her voice. She goes, I'm so sorry, honey. And I said, Mom, what, whatever it is that's 40 years ago, I, I don't care. I forgive you. I'm just trying to figure this out. She says, I'm so sorry, but when... You were a one-year-old in 1965. I was really depressed myself. My dad had just got out into prison, and he was guilty, and I'd always idolized him, and I was devastated. My whole world fell apart.
0: Hmm.
1: At the same time, my husband, your dad, was a captain in the army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam, and I was terrified. We we were trying to have a second kid. You were only one-year-old. I didn't know how I was gonna get by, as an army widow with two small kids yeah, and, and I was going to miss him. And so half the time that you came running to me with, you know, desire for healthy food or a hug or some love or just to play, I didn't have the wherewithal to do it. I was sitting and staring at the wall. And so I got a little refrigerator and I put it on the floor and I put a great big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator. And I would say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator at the bottle, you'd open the cap and you'd suck on the top and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma and I didn't have to worry about you. And that's probably how you got set up to run to chocolate, which was always my favorite thing for revenge. Hmm. And so if this were a movie at that point, that insight would be a pivotal insight. And mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and and I would never crave chocolate again. Right. If this was a movie. Yeah. What actually happened, we we did have a hug and a cry and we learned a lot about each other and I I forgave myself on many levels, but my chocolate problem got worse, not better. And the reason it got worse was there was this crazy voice in my head that said something like this, hey Glenn, you know what, you're right, our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate sized hole in your heart. And until you can fill it up with real love and find the love of your life, you're going to have to keep on binging on chocolate, so let's go get us some right now. Yippee, let's go do it. (laughs) Yeah. And I realized at that point that it's not the emotion itself that's the problem. You could have a roaring fire. Let's assume that emotion is like fire. You could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace in the living room, and that becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around it, and they share stories, and they make memories, and they give hugs. Yeah. It's only when there is a hole in the fireplace that an ash can come out and burn down the house. Yeah. And the equivalent to the hole in the fireplace are these justifications for breaking your plans. So if you make a plan that says, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again, and you hear this little voice in your head that says, You know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. Yeah. It's not going to matter. You could start your silly weekday plan again tomorrow, you know, and it's a Wednesday. Well, that's a voice of justification that's poking a hole in, hole in the fireplace. And I decided that it would be easier to recognize and disempower <coughs> that voice than to try to put out the fire. And turns out that I was right. Um, it's a lot quicker to figure out the justifications you're using and disempower them by looking at, um, looking at the logic behind them. So, for example... It won't be just as easy to start tomorrow if you indulge a craving today because the principle of neuroplasticity says that what fires together wires together. Right. If you have a craving and you fire that with an indulgence of that craving, then tomorrow that craving is going to be stronger, not the same. So it's not just as easy, it's harder. If you're in a hole, stop digging. Yeah. So I, I kept a journal for a lot of years. I, I decided that that crazy voice inside of justification that that was my pig, my inner pig. Some people don't like that word. Some people prefer to call it a food monster. It doesn't matter as it was that cute
0: cat. But for you, that, that worked. Now I wasn't going to publish
1: this. This was just a very private You're, thing. Right, right. I kept the journal for a lot of years. I decided whatever it was squealing for was pig slop. So, for example, chocolate on a Wednesday would be pig slop. And I would say, I don't want that. My pig does. This is kind of embarrassing. Yeah, um, yeah for a sophisticated psychologist like me, but I'd say, <laughs> i say, I, I don't want that. My pig does. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And before I knew it, I no longer felt powerless. It, I'm not going to tell you that I stopped having chocolate altogether or that I controlled myself completely every single time, but I no longer felt powerless and confused. I, I felt like I was capable of deciding whether to stay with the plan or not. There was not this irresistible impulse inside of me. Um, I didn't have a chronic, progressive, mysterious disease. This was really my lizard brain having been hijacked. The survival drive within my lizard brain was hijacked by artificial stimulation of my pleasure centers, which made me think that I needed chocolate to survive. Mm. And that's, you know, and then it's aggravated if you also activate the feast and famine response if you're not eating enough or not getting enough minerals or, you know, or healthy food then you're also aggravating this response. But essentially, this was a bodily organ that I had to take control over, much like I control my bladders or my testicles. My, I only have one bladder, my bladder or my testicles. Right. <laughs> if, if I had to go pee really badly now, if my bladder was telling me I had to pee, I would do one of two things. Probably I would just tell it to wait because we'll be done in a half an hour and I'll, I'll take care of it then. So I wouldn't totally ignore the biological need, but right. I would subjugate it to my needs and the kind of person I want to be and what I'm trying to accomplish in the world. And the other thing I might do is say, well, excuse me, I need to take a five-minute break, and I'll, I'll be right back. But, but either way, I'm going to act like a civilized person. I'm not going to just pee on the floor here. Right. <laughs> it's not something, like, it's not without precedent. It's not like there are no other very powerful biological urges that press for expression that we live comfortably with on a day in and day out basis because we know that we can subjugate them to our needs, that they don't control us. Yeah. And slowly but surely I started to realize that I was in control and that I could make the decisions that I wanted to. And I started to think, well, you know, nobody's telling me what to eat. I'm going to make these rules myself. I'm going to make sure that they're attending to my my actual authentic biological needs. I'm not going to try to starve myself in any way. I'm not going to overly restrict. I'm just going to make rules that create a healthy, substantial diet for myself day in and day out without long periods of fasting or anything like that. And it's going to be sustainable, something I can do. And then it's kind of silly for me to keep breaking my own rules. Let me make rules I can live with. Yeah. And over time I taught myself that I could do that. And I lost, um, Probably all things considered, depending upon what day you weigh me, it would be eighty pounds. Um, I I I'd stopped weighing myself when I got really heavy, so I don't know what my top weight really was. Right,
0: right. I was
1: it at around two eighty, um, and I I kept a journal for eight years about all the crazy things that Pig said, and all the all the lies that were within there. And then in 2015, when I was getting divorced, I had to shut down all my other businesses, and the CEO of the publishing company I was involved with was a minor partner. He said, you know, we should publish a book of our own so that we can prove that we know what we're doing with marketing and attract more accomplished authors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, well, I have this crazy journal you see. And <laughs> I, I edited it into a book really quickly, like in a month's time. And I sent it to him and he calls me back a few weeks later and he says, Glenn, donuts or pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And before you know it, we'd edited it more aggressively. We published the book. Um, you know, we, we both knew what we're doing with marketing cause I spent a lifetime in marketing as well as psychology, but still neither one of us expected how viral it was going to go or how much it was going to take off. And, um,
0: I believe by February next year, we should have a million readers. So yeah. it's, um, pretty crazy so did 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 your partner connect with this this uh, this identification of of your pig Uh, he lost 86 pounds is that right
1: (laughs) and he's, he's even more aggressive with it than i am so yeah it worked
0: well it's it's interesting because i've i've had you know some other people on the show who have talked about you know different kinds of of diet plans and you know there's a there's a science behind all of that as well and i've and i have a a background in that uh, I kind of got into doing some nutritional counseling at one point, and kind of thought I might go into that realizing sort of similarly to you that like you can't you can't outrun your your diet, you know you can't, you can't just keep exercising eventually the the machine is going to break down. And so that was one of those things that, and, and I'm similar to you, you know, I was very active when I was younger and sort of naturally, and it was, it was easy for me to just burn calories. And I probably had the same kind of diet, maybe, you know, maybe not quite as bingy, but certainly not great food, <laughs> which led to, yeah. I think, other kind of issues and skin problems and all that stuff. But, you know, there's a, there's a certain point at which you, you, you kind of, I mean, by by the time I was in my twenties, I started to realize like, I just don't feel good. And I think it was... Sort of part of why I was, you know, struggling with some back pain. It wasn't, you know, the, the there was some structural stuff going on with the back pain. There was some emotional stuff going on as well. But I also think I was just putting crap in my body, and yeah. you know that that the inflammatory response just started to build up as part of that as well. So it's you know, but I I I identify with this this notion of of, you know, using, using food as a, as a comfort mechanism, but also that it's, it's more powerful than you are. It feels like that, that your, your alpha being is, is getting challenged and that, you know, your, your ability to identify it. And like you're saying, I think you can identify it as whatever, but it, it is, it is that thing that's trying to overpower what your, your base desire actually is, which is not to overeat.
1: Yeah i'd like to make three points about what you just said because i think it's really important um first of all thank goodness for health crises because that's what that's what propels us to go on a health quest yeah right? agreed yeah yeah and I, I had my own health crises and i couldn't couldn't outrun my diet any any longer mm-hmm. there, there's actually a diagnostic category called exercise bulimia which yeah. is a legitimate form of bulimia it's Maybe slightly healthier for you than actually purging and throwing up, but it's not a lot, right. not a lot. So it's if you're doing that, you're in trouble. If you're if you're working out so that you can eat it, it eventually catches up with you. Um, so you want to be able to to get control over that. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to say was that while it's accurate to say that when you overload your digestive system, I got this from Doug Graham. When you overload your digestive system, your nervous system doesn't have the resources to conduct the emotions in the same way. And so there's an analgesic or an anesthetic effect on the emotions.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: people, people will say that they numb out. That's true, but it's only half the story. It's It's missing the fact that when you are, the things that people are overeating are usually hyper concentrated forms of uh pleasure you know starch yeah. or sugar or fat yeah. or excitotoxins or, yeah. or salt and another word for that is a drug right yeah, we, we exactly. didn't have chocolate right. bars on the savannah yeah right there were no you know there were no bags and boxes and containers or no potato chips or pretzels in, in the tropics where are overstimulating our pleasure centers in order to get high with food it's important. I'm not saying people can't have potato chips or chocolate if they want to. And by the way, my whole program is diet agnostic. I let people work with any diet within reason that they choose. It's got to be yeah. nutritionally sound. You can't come to me and tell me you don't want to have, eat for a month. I, I can't help you with that. Right. Right. Um, there are some rules you can't make. You could try making a rule saying I'll never pee again, but your body's going to tell you otherwise. <laughs> yeah. um, but but th- these are drugs. Th- these are these are hyper-concentrated, supersized stimuli that down-regulate your nervous system when you overexpose your taste buds and your dopaminergic pleasure center to unnatural pleasures, then your whole system stops responding. Your taste buds become much deader than they were, and fruit won't taste as good to you anymore. Mm-hmm. So people say they don't like fruit and vegetables just because they're so used to being overstimulated yes. that they... And some people, when that goes to an extreme, they feel an inability to experience pleasure anywhere. Yeah, because they're they've been so overstimulated. It, the it's, good newsy.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say it's it's interesting because it's very similar to what I deal with when I when I'm working with people who are very Type A, and I and I, I was I my had my practice in New York for 13 years, so. Not, not that there aren't uh, enough. Uh, I'm in Minneapolis now, and there's plenty of Type A people here too. But, yeah, yeah. but I, I think by and large, most of the people who are able to make it in New York, you know, as the saying goes, uh, are are Type A, and and it becomes so normalized uh, to to keep hitting those those centers with just activity and with you know just constant you know gratification and and all its different forms when you live in in New York that. They they don't even know what it's like to live with a, a nervous system that's autonomically balanced. You know, they're so in their fight or flight makes them feel so alive all the time, and their adrenals are just cranking. You know, and it's only pain usually that that starts to like slow down the mm. the machine. And and that's one of those things that I end up really having to teach people too. That you know, it's actually balancing that that system that helps them have a, a real focused energy because. You you know what it's like. With, it's it's like a, a child on, on sugar. Like you can't get them to focus on anything, and it's the same thing when our when we're in fight or flight response. It's very similar. I, I
1: grew up in and around New York, and I, I lived there until I was almost forty. So and I experienced New York as overwhelming. Now I didn't realize it at the time. I know. I know. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm so much calmer in Florida. I lived in Portland, Oregon for a little while. That was much calmer. It was much much better. The good news is is that your system will upregulate. If you stop overstimulating it. So if right. you have a chocolate bar every day and then you stop or you have it just once a week, your system will become more sensitive to natural sugars and your taste buds will regenerate and you'll start to find pleasure in other things. Even though your pig will tell you you're going to be deprived and tortured forever. It's it's not true. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. And and we should and we should know that. I mean, it's 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 interesting because I I I feel like almost everyone is is able to relate to this this idea because I think there are very few people who don't have a binge period in their life with one drug or another. With yeah, ex- exactly. Whether it's food or gambling or porn or
1: you know drugs or yeah, most people have some vice at some point in their life, and and the thing that scares them and actually stops people from. Um, going through and changing their life in this way is the experience of um, boredom and understimulation when they stop,
0: mm.
1: and, and they don't know that our natural state is more akin to how you feel when you are sitting on the beach and smelling the negative ions in the ocean air and listening to the surf. That that's more or less how we're intended to be. We're not supposed to be impinged upon by constant. Stimuli for danger. And and I I think predation was relatively rare in most of our evolution in the tropics. Life got more difficult after the ice ages and we had to move north and find other food sources and stuff. But um, our natural state is really one with much more uh, calm and peace. And the other thing I tell people is that your pig doesn't want you to know this because on the other side of that, if you stop binging... If you cut out the frequency or cut out entirely some sugar, flour, alcohol, and chemicals from your life, you'll go through this period of boredom for a month or two, but then your energy starts to shift and you start to find more purpose in life. Like what, who can I connect with? What can I write about? How can I use my time? How could I be a better parent? How can I be a better friend? Um, you know, what can I contribute at work? What, what do I do with all of this? libido that used to be directed squarely at food yeah and when you start to find your purpose there's no such thing as boredom because every spare moment you want to do something to move
0: more in the direction of your life's purpose it's interesting because you know i I think we so often like we talk about it as as kind of uh this metaphoric kind of hole in in the heart that we're trying to fill and and i i always thought about you know hunger and and you know i think people think and this gets back to like the pig a little bit is like if you go 4 hours and you're like i'm so hungry you're not going to die in the next you know 24 hours if you don't feed that pig right but they're not gonna—they're not gonna find your bones by the refrigerator, <laughs> right? But but what what is the hunger? You know what I mean? Like what's what is driving the fear behind that that hunger? Sometimes this is one of those things I I I feel like I kind of brushed up against that when I was make trying to make some changes and and realizing that I too had some you know binging issues where where I, I you know and I think on you know back to what you were saying I think there's there's a point at which if if we if we take away all the stimulus what what is that what is there you know what is that hole now what, what is that thing that we called hunger what is it what is it we're really hungry for you know I, I, yeah and a lot of that can be emotional
1: and it's a good thing to sit with and you know tell your pig that you're willing to experience any level of discomfort without binging yeah um, so that you can change your habits but don't discount the idea that your body might have an authentic need I remember Jack Trimpey from Rational Recovery, who's the first author that introduced me to the idea of the lizard brain versus the neocortex. He was working with a smoker, and he told the smoker that your body has made a biological error, and it thinks that smoke is oxygen. It thinks you can't live without that. Mm -hmm. However, there's something you can do. You don't just have to tough it out. You can go outside and take three breaths of very deep fresh air yeah. and sigh it out. And what you're doing there is retraining your survival mechanism to point out what it really needs, not at the smoke, which is the biological error. Mm-hmm. And I realized that in most situations there was some authentic physical need. Um, and sometimes it was purely emotional, um, and so you have to address that too. But more often than not, for example, when I was craving chocolate, I really did need some minerals or some energy, and so I started experimenting with different smoothies, and I, I eventually arrived at a kale celery banana combination, which would take the kale it would take the chocolate craving away. Okay. I I wouldn't. It wouldn't make me high. I didn't get as excited about it as I <laughs> right.
0: got about yeah. the chocolate. Yeah. Right.
1: But there's a difference between mania and contentment and The kale smoothie would make me feel content. I would not be bothered at all by the cravings The chocolate would make me feel high and and manic and there would be an ensuing crash, right? And so I tell people to ask themselves What would the authentic bodily need? What could it be? You know, did you? Did you eat enough during the day before you had this craving for junk um, is your food well enough balanced? It's, it's worth looking at those things and talking to a dietitian or a nutritionist, which I, I'm not, by the way, I'm not a medical doctor either. Yeah. Um, but you know, what, what's the analogy, what is your cool, deep breath of fresh air that is going to
0: correct the, the, um, physiological craving for junk? That's a, that's a great thought to close with. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your experience and insight with me and my listeners here. This is exactly what I was hoping for. I have experience from the food science side of things, and I was uh, and how the how it affects us physiologically. But I, I really wanted to add the psychological effects and to gain some understanding of how to work with this side of ourselves. And it's it's incredibly helpful. Well,
1: thank you, thank you. And there's um, you know, like I say, there's a there's a more depthful, soulful conversation you can have about any food that you're struggling with, but that doesn't mean you need to solve those problems and figure all those insights out before you can stop overeating. Stopping overeating is a very practical logistical matter. Like what's, what are your dangerous food triggers? What, um, what small set of rules are you willing to follow in order to make a difference? And then watch yourself try to break it and look for the lies and all the things your pig tells you to get you to break it. That's that's the essence of what we do to restore free will and responsibility.
0: And do you have a, a website we can check out as it relates to the book or, or any ongoing support?
1: I've got a whole bunch of stuff. So if you go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big red button to sign up for the reader bonuses – what you'll get is a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Okay. We we also have everything on Audible and, and paperback if you want that. Um, you can also look at our other books. You will get a free set of food plan starter templates. So we put some thought into the set of rules that people use. You know, if they're if they're um, you know, plant based like me, or you know, are, are low carb or paleo or Point counters or calorie counters or vegan or um, macrobiotic thing. We put together some starter sets of rules that you can consider customizing for your own needs. Um, they're, they're not diets. We don't want you to take them as is. We want you to really think it through and we have a process out, outlined in a workbook that you can do. And that's all free. And then I know this is a really weird thing in theory. I know that philosophically you must be saying, why the heck is there this doctor on the on the call who has a pig inside of it? It just doesn't make <laughs> sense. But, but but it's actually a very compassionate process. Yeah. And if you listen to me coach some people, I recorded a whole bunch of things you can listen to for free. If you listen to me do that, you will find that people go from feeling hopeless and confused and powerless at the beginning of the session to feeling confident and enthusiastic and powerful at the end of the session. And it's just one session. You can hear that. So it's a very compassionate process. This is not something which degrades your self-esteem. People are afraid you're calling yourself a pig. It's, it's not like that at all. It's like taking control of a bodily organ. And when people have control, they feel like a master of their own fate and their self-esteem goes up, not down. So go over to NeverBingeAgain.com. Click the big red button. Sign up for the reader bonuses. And we'll be good to go.
0: Thanks again, Glenn. This was great. Glenn Livingston, folks. A lot to sit with here. Do we eat it? Do we kill it? Or do we mate with it? That has to be one of my favorite quotes from any conversation in the podcast so far. Thing is, you know, we we should enjoy food and enjoy sharing our meals together. As I discussed with the food writer Peter Kaminsky back in episode thirty-eight. When it becomes a vice, though, the trickle-down effect of food can really hold us hold its grip on our enjoyment and affect nearly every relationship we have because we need it to survive. It's also built into the fabric of just about every aspect of our family, our work and our leisure time. So it, was, it felt very important to sort of hear a more psychological approach to the way that we end up having having a relationship with food. And I think Glenn really does a great job of, of helping us understand what that relationship is. Sometimes we, we need a device to to, to be able to understand what's going on in this dynamic between us and this thing that seems to have its control over us. So I'm very thankful that Glenn has taken the time to do this with me um, and also that he's offering this book free digitally. Uh, the, that website one, one more time here is neverbingeagain.com. Uh, go check it out and you can get your free download if, if this is something that interests you. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can email me at jeremy at highwoodhealthpodcast.com. And if you have a guest you think I should have here on the show, please reach out to me and let me know who they are and why you think I should have them on. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends.